I'm going to start with a little follow-up. I know it was a couple weeks ago, but we showed a DVD of me preaching about generational curses. Remember that? And I suggested that those who come to Christ are blessed. What a radical idea. But that's an idea that's not accepted by a whole lot of people. So there's teachings out there claiming that people as Christians are still under generational curses. And that if they have problems in their lives, they got to go back three and four generations and find out who the culprit was. You know, amongst people they, most of whom they never knew. And because you didn't even know a lot of these ancestors, the inner healing teachers say that you need somebody to get what they call a word of knowledge. So we have people that I call shamans who get revelations to tell people what sort of curse they're under. This is very prevalent. If you don't believe me, you should see the emails I get from people who have heard this sort of thing. Anyhow, uh, let's begin with prayer, and then I'll talk about that. Thank you, Lord, that we have the truth of the gospel, that you brought us into your kingdom and called us blessed sons and daughters. Let us walk accordingly, believing your promises, and give us wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we'll get to the PowerPoint that you have there, but this, these slides I had put tacked on to show why this whole inner healing thing is a problem. This is a follow-up to that DVD. I'm going to claim that nowhere in the New Testament are we taught to comb through our past to try to figure out different memories, different events, different relationships, and so forth in order to figure out how to have the blessing of God on our life. And you would not believe how adamant these false teachers are. And it's driven by experience. Let me give you an example. This is less than two weeks old. This is an email exchange that I had with someone who was questioning one of my articles on inner healing. This is quoting the our reader. Hi, I read your article and asked some questions. Jesus started ministry by quoting Isaiah 61 scripture about bringing good news to the poor and healing the brokenhearted. These are first things he did in starting ministry. Healing the broken heart speaks of our emotions. My question If something traumatic happened as a child, why wouldn't Jesus want to heal the memory? 
let me just interject. There's a, first of all, there's a category here. She brings in the term emotions as defined by modern psychology. And assumes Jesus is talking about that. That's a category here. Number two, why wouldn't Jesus want to heal the memory? I think I said in my article, I know we've said it on the radio, memories are not sick. They just are. Okay? The ability to remember things in our life and proceed accordingly is how we learn and it's part of being a human created in God's image versus a beast that lives by instinct. Okay? So memories aren't some sick thing like a cancer that needs some kind of healing or therapy. They're not sick. They just are. And I, I did a whole bunch of research on this in the last 30 years because I used to be in the inner healing ministry, and I repented of that and got out. I got to admit, partly because people, the same people always had the same problems. It wasn't working. But then I went to Scripture and said, oh, that's why it's not working. That was in the early 80s. Now, there's a book that was written by Dickens. Called, I think it's called Green Fields or Green Memories. And it's somebody whose bad memories were all erased. And the person became utterly cruel and a wicked despot. Why? Because not being able to remember anything bad that ever happened, totally, this is a, a fiction, but it illustrates an idea. It removed his ability to empathize. Not being able to remember having been mistreated, he just kept mistreating everybody around him because he couldn't relate to how bad it was to go through that. See, as in a fallen world, our memories help us become compassionate people. Because we know that's not good. How many people have I counseled in 40 years of ministry who said things like, well, I know my parents were awful, how they raised me, so I made it my goal to be different. I'm going to raise my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I'm going to treat them differently than I was. Take away memories, assuming that they're, they need to be erased or healed or something, you lose that. Be, ability to remember what happened to us, contemplate the significance of that, and then process that and make decisions is part and parcel of being created in the image of God. And so the inner healers are fighting against the image of God in human beings. And they're treating us badly. Let me back to the email. Now remember, she believes when Jesus, actually in Luke 4, 18, didn't quote that little phrase, healing brokenhearted. It is in Isaiah, but she assumes that's about emotions. So I have emotions now that are sick and have to get healed. That's the theory. My question, if something traumatic happened as a child, why wouldn't Jesus want to heal the memory? 
I mean, this is just a huge leap. It's assuming all kinds of psychological theories that aren't anywhere in the Bible. Well, Jesus is so nice. Of course, he wants to heal my memory. So because of that, all these healers can script Jesus to go back into a person's past and reinterpret what happened. That's theophastic prayer ministry. I wrote about that, too. I wrote a letter to a pastor who brought this stuff into town, and he just pushed me off. He wouldn't even listen to it. He doesn't care. He, he's getting people to come and listen to this stuff. Now, more from the reader. I had some healing memory work done. Did anybody in the New Testament do healing memory work? <laughs> did Paul? Did Peter? Did John? No. So now you just take one leap after another, after another. I had some healing memory work done through a Christian counselor, and now the personal experience. I've grown so much from it. I'm, I'm not the same person and experienced such peace and joy from it. What are your thoughts? So she's just suggesting that I'm really bad to be writing my article. Something wrong with me. So here's what my response. Hi, so-and-so. Thanks for contacting me. Yes, Jesus did cite Isaiah 61, and Luke 4.18 is a key passage in Luke-Acts. Here's what it says, and I quote it. The brokenhearted reference is not in the best New Testament manuscripts, but is in Isaiah. Even at that, it is not clear that this means human emotions linked to traumatic experiences. There's, there's no evidence that's what Isaiah was talking about. Nothing in Luke 4 suggests that this was Jesus' concern. The concern is the gospel, not psychological counsel, as understood by modern people. I'm writing to this lady. The concern is the gospel. He not only says preach the gospel to the poor, he mentions release to captives. The Greek word for release is aphesis, which is a term in Luke acts for the forgiveness of sin. This is another gospel issue. The blind were healed in Jesus' ministry, showing that he's the promised Messiah. Then I quote Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, about Messiah bringing, when God comes, he'll unstop the ears of the deaf, the lame will leap, the mute will shout, Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, I quoted it to her. See, this happened in Luke Acts, proving Jesus is the promised Messiah. Then I say, in Acts, the lame man leaped. In John 9, the blind man was healed. When Messiah came on the scene of history, I write, the promise God will come was fulfilled. Throughout Luke, the oppressed were freed. I'll kind of try to speed this up. In Acts, Jesus told Paul what he would do. To open their eyes, Acts 26, 18, so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, Luke 4, 18, Acts 26, 18, bookends, and inclusio, 
Luke Acts is a two-volume work. That's what Jesus has said this. Forgiveness of sins. Do the inner healers talk about that? Oh, no. Oh, no. Healing of emotions, not forgiveness of sins. You're not the sinner. You're the victim. They may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Who's that? Christians. They're converted. Now, I'm me. I'm quoting me here. These things happen at conversion, not in a post-conversion counseling session based on past experiences. Paul himself had much to be forgiven and healed, having endorsed and promoted the murder of Christians. Yet there's no evidence that he needed some post-conversion counseling to heal memories of things like seeing Stephen stone. Can you imagine having stood there and said, yes, stone him, hold the cloaks, and watch a man be slowly pelted, gradually getting weaker and weaker till he finally dies? And you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finding out later, it was Jesus he was persecuting. If anybody need healing in memories, it would have been Paul. I don't know anybody with a worse memory. Let me go on here. But here's what Paul said. This is my response. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Then I write, having said this, I'm not saying you do not have peace and joy now, as you say. I rejoice that you do. But I caution you against the assumption that one needs an inner healer to identify and manipulate past memories to achieve this. We have peace and joy because they are fruits of the Holy Spirit. And I go on and talk about that. Everything is based, I had an experience. Go ahead. I'd like to link that to the epidemic of false conversion. Because if you uh, are truly saved and born again, i.e. repentance, these, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have, I believe, you wouldn't have those issues. Well, yeah, you know what? When you're a new creature... The greatest thing that's so fantastic. You know God. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to heaven. I can leave it behind. It's all under the blood. I can go forward. I can press on to the goal of thy calling of God in Christ and one day attain to the resurrection. And whatever all that stuff was, it's all under the blood. I remember it. Because memory is a gift from God. Without it, we'd be like animals. And I can remember it like Paul did when he said he was a chief of sinners, but had found mercy. I can remember it to remind myself what I do not want to do again. And if somebody mistreated me, 
I can remember it so that I know how I don't want to treat others. Healing of memories is false teaching. It's wicked. It's damaging. It subverts people, and it keeps them from walking in the spirit, depending on God. You know, if any people in the world can forget their past, it's Christians. And the only thing we need to remember, I believe, is that we've been crucified with Christ and raised a new person. Amen. That's it. Well, here's, here's why I have this. Here's a book by Neil Anderson that sold a million copies. The book that I quoted from says, for over a million sold. Now, I don't know if you can read that, but I got hard copy. This is a checklist you got to go through to find out what you need to be healed of. Let me just read a little of this. Astral projection, Ouija board, Bloody Mary, light as a feather, table lifting, magic eight ball. How many kids had one of those? It's a little thing and it would... Spells or curses, mental control, trances, spirit guides, Magic, witchcraft, Satanism, palm reading. Oh, there's, it goes on and on and on. It'll apply to, to most anybody. Uh, then he says, here's some other questions. Have you ever seen, heard, or felt a spiritual being in the room? Have you heard voices? Have you been contacted by beings? Have you made a vow? So there's all of that. Here's another page. Another checklist. Look at, oh, here. Look at, keeps going. These are three consecutive pages. Here's some more. Ambition. If you have ambition, you need inner healing. Food. Money. Computers. Financial security. Rock stars, church activities, movies, sports, fun, ministry, appearance, work, busyness, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. These all might be idols, he's saying. Yeah, fishing. (laughs) Now you're meddling. Some things are convicting, some are just meddling. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. When I read that book and when I wrote an article about this, 100% of Christians are going to need inner healing. And they need some special counselor to do it. And, like this email I got, So let's say this lady did have one bad memory, went to an inner healer, now she has peace and joy, which she says came from the inner healer rather than from the Holy Spirit. At least that's what I see. What happens later when you don't feel peace and joy? I know this because I was in a ministry in the 70s that did all this. What happens? You assume there's something else. That's a long list. And you go back for more. And then what happens the next time? 
you go back for more. And human life is so complex, you never, ever run out of memories. There's no end to where the curse may have come from. So when I gave that message that we saw on video about generational curses, I did that because I want every Christian to know that they escaped from the curse and they came to Christ and they have perpetual blessing that will go all the way to eternity. And what? And people say, well, what am I going to do if I give up my inner healer? My answer, and Eric and I do this on the radio, is the same. Believe the promises of God. But that's it? Yes. Believe the promises of God. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, I may boldly say, he is with me. What shall man do unto me? I shall not fear. I believe the promises of God. That's it. And then walk in the spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, that was just a follow-up. So you can decide today. You're going to go through the checklist. Or you're going to say, thank God. It's all under the blood. In Revelation, the accuser was accusing them day and night before God. They didn't overcome him by a checklist. They didn't consult an inner healer. They overcame him by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb. And they loved not their lives unto death. They believed the promises of God, the blood of the lamb. It's not what I do for God. It's what he did for me and what he is doing for me. The blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. First John, our sins are forgiven. Remember, I was preaching on that. Somebody says, how are you doing? Nice answer. My sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. There's my little follow-up. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you. Now let's get into the meat of the axe here. Now you go to your outline. Very interesting play on words that Luke does here. Oh, this is so brilliant. It's so amazing. And let me read the text. Well, Eric, could you read it? Acts 7, 44 through 50. So starting in verse 44, Acts 7 says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? Amen. Now, go to verse 44. But I'm going to go back to 43 to pick up a theme. Why 44 through 50 is about the house of God or the tent. Well, what they had done when they were turned over to the host of heaven, they took up the tent of Moloch. That's verse 43. So Stephen, Luke's uh, citing of what Stephen preached, says, you took up the tent of Moloch, which was a dwelling place for the demon or fallen angel. Now we have, what about the house of God? The issue was already on the table because they accused the Christians of speaking against this holy place. So the Sanhedrin said the temple is the house of God and these people are following Jesus who said destroy the temple. Of course he's talking about his own body. So they accused them of blaspheming the temple. And Stephen is saying to them no, you took up the tent of Moloch. You're saying the temple, the temple, the temple when all the while you got the tent of Moloch. See the issue? That's from Amos 5, 25 through 27. Stephen cites the Septuagint, which has tent of Moloch. And uh, Raphon, another one of their wicked spiritual entities, had to do with astral idolatry. And we see the same thing in Isaiah 14 about Satan and the stars of God sitting above the assembly. So you have an issue about where is the house of God. Verse 44 now. Our fathers had the tent of witness. Now he's looking back to Moses' time. The idolaters went to the tent of Moloch, but when they had Moses, they had the tent of testimony. That's what that word martyrian means. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. And just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. So the tent of testimony contained the ark of the testimony. Now, Eric, you're a good reader and you got a mic. Could you go to 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 7? The tent of testimony was where God met Moses. Go ahead. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, 
with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Yeah, God said, did I ever complain? Did I ever complain about the tent? The tent was made according to the heavenly pattern. Who has the other mic? Look up Hebrews 8, 5. So the king is thinking, I got a nicer house than God does. So I think we need to make him a house. And we'll make God a better house than mine. And we'll have a really good one. Go ahead. Who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Yeah, Hebrews claims that the pattern was patterned after the heavenly. Okay? And so the tabernacle was God's idea, and it was to remind them that he dwelt in their midst. He tented among them. And it was made according to the heavenly pattern. Is that correct? According to Hebrews. Now let me quote Dr. Pullhill, quote, the theme of worshiping God in this place, i.e. in the Jerusalem temple, is set forth quite positively in the beginning of Stephen's speech, verse 7. The emphasis, however, is on the worship, not the place of worship. Stephen did not reject the temple as such, but the abuse of the temple made it into something other in a place for offering worship to God. His view is thus closely linked to that of Jesus, who also attacked the abuses of the temple cult and stressed his true purpose of being a house of prayer. Luke 19.46. Okay, so Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer for all people, right? And they said, the temple, the temple, the temple... And they accused the Christians of blaspheming the temple, accused Jesus of doing that, which is one reason they called for his crucifixion. Now, let me give you the big picture, and then we'll go to the next slide. The purpose of God's dwelling among the people is to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. Through Abraham's seed, God would bless all peoples, Jew and Gentile. God wanted to meet the people. Now the Sanhedrin, who were being confronted by Stephen, had used the temple to exclude people, to keep them out. It's now without reason that the veil was torn in two, signifying access for all people through the gospel to the presence of God. The religious leaders want to say, we're in charge of this house and you stay out. You stay away. But God wanted to meet the people. So they made the tabernacle. Now here's an overview of the argument in Acts 7 that we're covering. Which tent 
is valid. The tent of Moloch is idolatry, Acts 7.43. Moses' tent of the testimony was valid, Acts 7.44. Peter wanted three tents, Eric, Luke 9.33-36. So throughout here, there's a debate. What tent is the right one? Where is the house of God? Luke 9:33 to 36 it says and as the men were parting from him Peter said to Jesus master it is good that we were here let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said and he was saying these things as excuse me as he was saying these things a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one, listen to him. And then the voice had spoken, excuse me, when this voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what had been seen. Do you have any comments on what signified there? No, you know, it's very interesting, though, this contrast between the tents. And what's interesting is when Christ comes, he tabernacles among us, as you're going to show. Yes. And then he builds us his tent, his new temple. The and so we're now God, the project. Yeah. Yeah, the people of God become the temple of God. Amen. Yeah. And so this last, then, there's, us. yeah, there's no geography for the kingdom of God yeah. now. Until you can't, the can't, I've always said yeah. the kingdom of God doesn't have a zip code. Yeah. <laughs> See, as we've been saying, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But you are of God. And if we come to God, if we're born of God, we don't continually sin, and God keeps us. The evil one doesn't touch us. See, you can't travel to the temple of God. You can't build the temple of God of God. Jesus Christ tabernacled amongst us. And here, the passage that Eric read, God endorsed Christ alone. There he is. Listen to him. What if Peter had three tabernacles? Well, then God would be limited to those places. When I said he didn't know what he was saying, the implication is he's confused. This isn't right. Now, John 1, 14. Jesus pitched his tent among us. I'm quoting from International Standard Version, which had the best translation from the Greek. Quote, the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented, which is a good translation of the Greek, among us. We gazed on his glory, the kind of glory that belonged to the Father's unique Son, full of grace and truth. I hope you see this. The Sinai allusions are huge. What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? Cloud came down. Amen? God spoke. Hallelujah. What happened at Sinai? God appeared in the cloud by day. God came down to Sinai 
and he spoke in a theophany to Moses. Said that he was full of loving kindness and truth. John says he tabernacled amongst us full of grace and truth. If you don't get the Sinai illusion, you're not a good reader. You're not going to get free coffee. (laughs) Oh, I guess you will anyhow. This is so gorgeous in its beauty and simplicity. Jesus tented amongst us. He embodied the very character qualities of God revealed on Sinai, loving kindness and truth. He was the tent of God among us. One thing I just want to mention, Bob, this ties in so nicely to the sermon, and we don't plan these things. We just go verse by verse. But what's interesting is I'll give a passage at the end of the sermon about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have God tenting among them, and yet they say, well, look how appealing we are to God. We wash our hands. So here the very righteousness of God is in their presence, the very means of atonement, the very means of having the law fulfilled for them. And they say to God, well, we've washed our hands. Aren't we great? And the absurdity really strikes you. Exactly. When, when you lay this out, Bob, that God tented among us, you see the absurdity of what the religious leaders were doing. Amen. And Stephen got it, yeah. and he preached it, and it cost him his life. They killed him because they wanted to stay in control of the presence of God because they had the authority over the temple precinct. But if the tent of God was in Christ and he revealed himself on Mount Sinai where God revealed him as his beloved son, listen to him, the Sanhedrin refused to listen to Jesus. So they were in rebellion against God. Jesus is the greater Moses. That's obvious. The tent that Jesus was in, his body, is greater than the tabernacle of the Old Testament. In his very person, is full of grace and truth. The implication is, you've got to come to Jesus. You know, but this went so bad so fast in church history. Constantine's mother... Anybody know what she did? They talk about it in Israel. She went around trying to find holy sites a few hundred years later and build church buildings on the holy sites. That's where the church of the Holy Sepulchre came from, the church on the Mount of Olives. When I was in Israel, there's a stone inside of this church that was built and they claimed Jesus sat on it when he was praying and over the centuries the stone was wore down and they had to keep people away from it they're trying to get a little piece of the stone I've seen it advertised on TV little pieces of wood in a cross they claim came from Christ see paganism is the default position what if Jesus sat on his stone? Does that make it a holy stone? 
What about the building they built? Is it a holy building? No. These, these magnificent cathedrals are trying to create a house for God. But they can't do it. The Bible tells us it won't work. You can't confine God to this house. People are superstitious. People are unbelieving. People are unconverted. They go into a Roman Catholic fancy cathedral, gold, silver, vaulted ceilings, beautiful glass, all of this stuff. Oh, God must be here. Oh, it makes me feel close to God. Constantine's mother, mother build, build these edifices. People can go there, find the house of God. The house of God's not a building. When I was in Bible college, I was well taught, great teachers, God bless them. But every senior graduating got to preach to chapel once. When I did, I preached on Mark 10, where blind Bartimaeus was crying out for healing, and the disciples were ignoring him and pushing him aside. And I pointed out in my sermon in chapel that Jesus had come to meet people like Bartimaeus, and the disciples were too busy with their religious procession to be bothered by this guy. Bartimaeus kept crying out to God. And the verse I referenced in that sermon was Isaiah 55, call unto the Lord when he is near. <laughs> Literally, there he was. Bartimaeus cried out. Well, that was my sermon. And uh, I thank God for that. It was Even back then when I was in my 20s, somehow I understood the gospel. There was a guy that graduated. It was poor teachers. There was a guy graduating and his senior sermon was that you ought to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. And his sermon was about how to behave in a church building. Does anybody know what that verse means? It means how you treat fellow Christians. The passage means the household of God. And you need to know how to treat believers. Not, and he was saying, well, the problem is we got in church, we got kids running around. And we got people, uh, you know, show up and they're not dressed nicely. So they're not acting right. I saw my teacher sitting there. <laughs> well, where did we fail? <laughs> this guy totally missed the point. But see, we gravitate to that. Everybody wants to build a building for God. And I see preachers on TV raising millions. They show their plans. We're going to build a place for the kingdom of God. We're going to build the house of God. And people are going to come here and they're going to feel close to God. I'm not saying it's a sin to have a building. But I'm saying if you do have one and you walk into it, you're not one lick closer to God. Where is the house of God? Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Acts 7, 54. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, that is the tabernacle, in 
with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So the tent went with them. And I mentioned corporate solidarity. I think I've got a couple of slides on that later, maybe before. Dispossessed, an uncommon Greek word used in Genesis 17.8. 17.8 says, I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. You know what the great covenant promise of the Old Testament is? I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. That is the ultimate promise. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll dwell in your midst. Under the new covenant, he's our God. We're his people, and he dwells in his temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the church bought by the blood of Jesus. He doesn't build, he still doesn't dwell in a house made with hands. No matter how glorious it is. I'm not saying you can't have a building, but I said many times, if we ever have a building, we, it would simply be a facility to facilitate the gospel. It won't be the house of God. Acts 7, 46, 47. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place as Stephen's sermon for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. Dwelling place in the Greek here means pitched tent. Same idea, Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Solomon built a house. I don't want to read this 17 verses. Take note. We've talked about some of that. But let me look at some of these passages on Solomon's temple. God was in their midst at that point. What happened, let me summarize 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11. So the elders were assembled, and Solomon, there was a feast. The elders came, and the priests, remember they had the staves? They went through the ark. Remember the guy that grabbed it on the ox cart? What happened to him? Drop dead. You have it on do it according to God. They had it on the staves. They carried it in. When Kings 8 4, they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. The priests and Levites brought them up. They, in verse 6, brought the ark of the covenant into its place. Then you have the cherubim. And all this is described also in Hebrews 9, by the way. They had the poles, there's the ark, and what was in it, two tablets of stone, where the Lord made a covenant, and the priests came. Verse 10, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. The cloud, where have we seen cloud? 
on Sinai, right? In the wilderness as their guide. And uh, Luke, what about on the Mount of Transfiguration? There was a cloud. When Jesus ascended bodily into heaven, where did he go? They saw him go into the clouds. When the Bible describes him coming again, what does it mention? Clouds, right? Coming in the clouds, signifying the presence of God. 1 Kings 8, 11. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So at that point, they had God in their midst. And now Solomon was going to dedicate this. And if you look at 22 through 27, Let's just read verse 27 for the sake of time. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I built. Even with the glory of God, the cloud, so powerful that the priest couldn't even minister they had all of that. And it's Solomon yet knew that isn't containing God. Here's the biblical doctrine of omnipresence. No house can contain God. Now, idolatry happened already about the house in the Old Testament. Eric could you read Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11? You might want to turn to this. You want to know these passages because it shows how something like Solomon's temple that served a good purpose. But Solomon knew it didn't contain God. Something even that was valid could be put to invalid use. Go for it. Jeremiah 7, starting with verse 1. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I, have, I gave of old to your fathers forever. Verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Then verse 9, he says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Oh, I'm sorry, all the way to 11. And then, and come, and then and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your there eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, 
declares the Lord. He became a den of robbers. Yeah, Somewhere along the line, Ichabod. I'm not trying to say I know Hebrew, but that means the glory is gone. Acts 748. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Handmade is a term used in Luke Acts, especially Acts, to denote idols. Paul preached that you should turn from these vain things and serve the living God. Turn from idols made with hands and serve God. The claim in Luke Acts is that God's purposes are not tied to the temple precinct, but he is bringing salvation to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8, which is thematic. The temple cannot restrict, confined, or be used to manipulate God. And that was true in the Old Testament. We saw it in Jeremiah 7. They said the temple, the temple, the temple. But you're not listening to God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The church is corporately the temple of the Holy Spirit. Eric, I'm, I'm trusting you can do this. Explain the significance of the judgment passage in 1 Corinthians 11 at communion in the context of the church being the true house of God. We did a whole sermon on this, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, but there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where you're called to examine yourself and to discern the body correctly. And a lot of people have abused the passage to think that what God is asking you to do through Paul is to examine yourself to see if you're good enough for the table. But what the examination passage is really about is you had certain Christians who are excluding other Christians. And so here they're excluding part of the body of Christ. And so what they were to realize is that every single believer had a right to that table and they could not be excluded. And if, in fact, they were going to exclude them, they were drinking judgment upon themselves. Why? Well, just as Bob is saying, they're excluding part of God, corporately, as it were, who dwells uh, in the church. Yeah. uh, Through the They're saying God doesn't dwell in these Christians. Exactly. Why? Because they're poor or they're sick. They weren't in the upper class. They got to come in to the atrium of the rich home they're having their church in. They had to sit outside. Some are excluded, so you're not good enough. It's almost as if Jeremiah 7 happens. Let's just say this is a table with communion. They're saying, the table, the table, the table. Yes, yes, exactly right. The table. Some churches do this. We're a better church because we keep as many of God's people away from this table as we can. Somebody was telling me a story about in some certain denomination, they have this big thing that comes down, boom, and it, and it locks everybody out except for the few who are deemed good enough that are allowed to get to the table. It's idolatry. It is. You know, and one, one comment I just want to make is when we're talking about God dwelling with his people, we're talking about a relational issue 
not a spatial issue. Amen. And that's important because, as Bob just pointed out, God is beyond just the temple. But the reason why the Shekinah, by the way, the term glory is that kavoth, his weightiness dwelt with Israel, was to show them that he, they had his favor. So when his glory departs, it doesn't mean that God isn't there. He's omnipresent. But the image is that they no longer have his favor. When the Spirit dwells with you, see, God is everywhere. His Spirit isn't located just here. But the idea is that you and I have his favor. Yeah, relationship. That's the idea. It's a relational issue, not a spatial issue. Yeah. Very good. That's too bad you don't drink coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Astute reading. It's a relational issue. And it was in the Old Covenant. Amen. Jeremiah 7 is so important. The temple, the temple, the temple. We have the scripture. The glory came. The priest couldn't minister. The cloud came. So the temple's still here. We're okay, even though we're breaking covenant, abusing people, living wicked lives. The temple, the temple, the temple. It's not a spatial issue. It's a relational one. If we're correctly, by faith, related to God through Jesus Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord's Supper is for everyone who has that status, not some piece of furniture. I'm not saying you can't have furniture. I'm saying you can't have a building. But we better get our theology right. Last slide on this is uh, God is transcendent. And I think you all know this. The answer is yes. God is transcendent. God wants us to come to him through the gospel and be his people. Next week, we'll go to verse 51, and we'll start heading toward the narrative of the martyrdom of Stephen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that you are with us, that you dwell with us, and that we're your people, and you're our God, and you dwell in our midst. And we thank you that through Stephen's preaching that resulted in his martyrdom, we can learn these things. Thank you for sending Jesus who tabernacled amongst us. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In thy holy name, amen. amen. God bless.